Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Plus EV Analytics. Matt, thank you very much for coming on the show. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today, I'm joined by Plus EV Analytics. Matt, thank you very much for coming on the show. All right. Thanks. Nice to be here. So we have uh, an Australian in New Jersey, so I don't know whether to start with good day or how you doing. <laughs> I've heard both this morning. I think, uh, you know, <laughs> there's a, a strange mix there. We, we might have to get to that later. What I'm, I, It's funny. An Aussie talking to a Canadian from uh, from Jersey, there's a, there's a bit going on there with the Commonwealth and the... Uh, the United States, but we'll we'll see how we go here. I think we'll we'll have a good chat. So tell us, Canadian background, sports betting isn't something that necessarily comes to mind outside of the lottery. Tell us what it was like in Canada back when you started betting. Well, it actually is the lottery. That's the fun part about uh, about sports betting here in Canada. So I, I actually got my start. I graduated from school right at the beginning of the, the poker boom. So I was an online poker player in my spare time from about 2004 through 2009. And at that point, the game started to get tougher, and it was just taking up too much of my free time. So I decided to uh, to take my retirement from the world of online poker. But I've always been fascinated by by gambling and mathematics and probabilities. I, I'm an actuary in my in my day job. I do this for fun. Um, but your, your listeners, I guess, both in Australia and the states, might be surprised to to know that there is quite a, a decent sized sports betting scene here in Canada. It just doesn't work the way people are used to. Sports betting has been legal in Canada since I would say about the early to mid nineties. Um, it's all government run and it's all parlays for some weird reason. There's a quirk in the law that says single game sports betting is illegal. But if you parlay games together, according to the law, all of a sudden it becomes more of a lottery than a, than a parlay. So the government runs these, these lottery systems and they're run just like lotteries and you'd play them in the same places in the same ways that you would buy uh, lottery tickets and you, you just, you can parlay, uh, you, can, you can get these parlay cards. The only problem is because it's a government monopoly, the, uh, the house take on these things is quite sizable. So if you get a game that's uh, a pick 'em, you might get 1.70 in decimal odds on both sides. So that's a 15% uh, house take multiplied across three to six game parlays. And you get something where the general consensus was that it is impossible to, to beat. And that's what I believed as well until uh, I, I stumbled across a couple of 
I guess you can call them angles that can be used to eat into or possibly even overcome this massive house advantage. And, and one of those things is the, because these things are run through uh, computer systems that were built for lotteries, they don't have the ability to update odds in real time. So you can get a lot of stale lines. And also because of the requirement that everything has to be parlayed, um, when they started offering a lot of props and things, they got a little bit too uh, liberal with the types of parlays that they would allow. So you had some correlated parlays. Um, now things have, have tightened up a lot over the last 10 years or so. A lot of the time now, when a line goes stale, they'll just take it off the board and, and the correlated parlays are, are nowhere near what used to be available. So. Um, it's time for me to, to move on and find something else, but uh, you know, there is a, a pretty vibrant online community of advantage players in this space, and I've made some connections um, through that, and, and I have some of those connections still today, and then uh, got myself a, a Twitter handle about four or five years ago and started building up my, uh, my presence on Twitter, and, and again, connected to a lot of sharp people, and you know, getting exposed to a lot of a lot of things. So one of those is from about 2011 to I would say about 14 or 15. I was involved in a horse racing syndicate where I consulted to some some pretty large horse racing betters, and it was something I had never really done before. But I I learned a lot about how to respect markets. Um, at the beginning, I couldn't find a model, no matter how hard I tried, that back tested well enough to beat the market. But one day I had this revelation, and I, I later learned that people like Bill Benter and uh, Zelko, I can't pronounce his last name, the Australian guy, yep. um, had, had also had where, where instead of building up your probabilities from scratch and comparing them to the market, you would start with the assumption that the market is perfectly efficient, and then you try to find little spots where it's not. And the real advantage to doing that is if I miss something, it gets picked up in the market odds. It's, it's, a, it's a missed opportunity because I haven't found it, but it won't kill me. Whereas if I'm building up probabilities from scratch and I miss something that's important, um, it, it can really, it can really turn, uh, can turn against me. So tell us about the actuary stuff, and we'll get to some of the horse racing syndicate work as well and, and some of the market talk. But it's not uncommon that you hear actuaries dabbling in the world of, of gambling and investing and wagering. Tell us how you see that overlap and where the most benefits are. Yeah, there are a couple of people who are uh, in my line of work. Obviously, the similarities are, are uh, study of applied probability. Um, people sometimes ask me, hey, you know, you're, you're an actuary. That must mean you're pretty good at gambling. And, well, it's true. And we can talk about some things that I've learned from my actuarial career and, and education that have helped me in gambling. What I would say is even more true that being a, um, not a professional gambler, but a serious recreational gambler has uh, opened my eyes to things that have really helped me in my job as well. Uh, I think I have an understanding and a respect for, for risk and uncertainty in markets that a lot of my colleagues who just study this stuff in textbooks um, don't have. I mean, they're, they're, I work with a lot of really smart people but it's one thing to learn about something like risk, and it's a different thing to interact with it and experience it in, in as um, complex a way 
as I do as a as a better. So I think it's really helped both ways. And it's the, there's really been a lot of uh, I guess a symbiotic relationship between my uh, my hobby and my career. So tell me about the analysis side, the handicapping side, not necessarily the execution of bets. How critical is that component uh, compared to the market, for example? You were talking about you have to respect the markets, but before you realized in those moments with the horse racing syndicate, the value of that market and the you know wisdom of the crowds and the consensus in some of those more liquid markets, what type of things were you doing or focusing on the most to try and have the best type of analysis? Uh, it's, it's a tough question because it really depends on, on the specific application, whether I'm looking at horse racing or whether I'm looking at, uh, I'm, I'm working on an in-play tennis betting model that I've been working on for, for a couple of months now, and I'm pretty close to, to finishing, and I'm doing some other things around NFL and, and hockey. But I, I think that the way to really succeed in these markets is to find find something that you can see or can analyze or can look at in a way that few other people can. And I think for me, my kind of niche is um, epistemic uncertainty, you can call it, or, or, or probability of probability, or, or you can call it Bayesian inference. And it's the idea of a, a probability of something not being a static number but being a range of possibilities. So a simple example might be, what's home field advantage worth in the NFL? So if you wanted to take the simplest possible way to answer that question, you might look at, at, at 30 years of historical data and say, okay, well, on average, it's worth three points. Okay, that's, that's not a bad estimate. Um, a more complex model might look at a few different factors, and they might say, okay, it's three points on average but it's worth more or less in some stadiums or some times of the year or some weather conditions. So maybe you have a Seattle uh, home game that's a division game in December, and maybe it's 3.4 instead of 3. So you've refined your estimate based on more information. But it's still a single number. So the kind of unspoken implication of that is that we, the modeler, have perfect knowledge of how much home field impacts the spread for a Seattle division game in December. But we really don't. It's an uncertain thing. So 3.4 is an estimate, and it might be a very good estimate, but it's still part of a range of possible values. So it might average to 3.4, but that 3.4 could be the center of a, call it a bell curve, and that bell curve could be tall and skinny, or it could be short and fat, or it could be somewhere in between. Well, why does that matter? Well, there, there are a couple of reasons. Um, the first one, back to your question about markets, well, what if it's not a, a symmetrical bell curve? If you think it's 3.4 and the market's priced it at 3.1, well, it's more likely that you've erred on the side of 3.3 than on the side of 3.5. So any errors you're making in your model are more likely to be on the side where it's being pulled toward the market number rather than away from the market number. And that's really important when it comes to quantifying your edge, which is important in things like Kelly, uh, Kelly criteria on uh, bet sizing. Because the edge, unlike something like uh, roulette or blackjack, when you calculate your edge, it's an estimate. It's not a, a, a totally known number. Uh, another thing it allows you to do is it allows you to update your model in almost real time as you learn from emerging observations. So maybe you think home field advantage is worth three, 
but you observe, you know, 200 home games and the average margin of victory is five. Okay, well, how do you update your estimate? Well, you know it's going to be more than three. You know it's going to be less than five. And how do you weight together um, what you thought it was before you observe anything with the actual thing that you've observed? And that's the nature of what's known as Bayesian inference, um, the, the, the use of information to refine an estimate of, of, uh, of probabilities. So I think that's something that I have a little bit of a leg up on because of, of the, the uh, actuarial education curriculum it actually does a pretty good job of, of teaching people to think about that, to think about probability as, as an estimate and an estimate that has a range of uncertainty rather than uh, a static thing. Um, you know, it comes to how do you, how do you predict the unpredictable? And, and the traditional answer is, well, you just do the best you can and you accept it and you move on. But that can lead some, some, some pretty fatal errors, both by the better and by the, the bookmaker. Um, if the bookmaker doesn't, doesn't account for uncertainty in the right way, you might get some, some so-called tail events, some pretty rare events that are possibly a lot less rare than uh, they would seem or would be implied in, in the odds. So um, you know, I won't go into too much detail, but this year I've gotten heavily involved in some NFL futures markets using a, a chain of logic that's uh, like that. And I guess the jury's still out. We'll see how it goes. It's really, really fascinating, especially myself not being at all in that field necessarily. But you know, listening to you talk, it sounds like this idea of perfection uh, it's just it's clearly impossible, and the the probability of the probabilities is a an interesting concept. And there's certainly no such thing as static perfection. Everything is is fluid, and it's it's constantly moving. So if that's the case, from your world, like what is the aim, or what's the intention, or you know, some might say, what's the point if you're never going to get a, a perfect number, or or something's always going to be a moving target? Do you have an intention? Do you have an aim that you can sort of crystallize for those who wouldn't be fully engulfed in your world? Oh, well, the point is to beat the markets, just like anyone else's is purposes. It's just that the, the way I'm doing it, everyone's trying to find weaknesses in, in markets in different ways. And, and the way I'm going at it is by no means the only way or probably not even the best way of going at it. But it's, it's what I know best. You know, if I was someone who knew the, the ins and outs of, of golf better than anybody else in the world, and I would be a golf handicapper, and I would, I would be using a very different approach than what I'm doing right now. But my area and my strength is, is this analysis of probabilities and this analysis of, of, of so-called epistemic uncertainty of, of you know, when, when you have an estimate of something, being able to quantify and even update that sort of range of uncertainty around your estimate. And, and um, there are some places where I believe that can, can lead to some profitable outcomes. But you know, I, I've just started to, to really um, get into this line of, of thinking when looking at sports betting. Uh, so like I said, the time will tell. But uh, either way, win or lose, it's something that I have a lot of fun studying. And like I said, it's something that, that does help me a lot in my day job because a lot of the concepts that I've learned, both from my horse racing career uh, and from my sports betting career, I have actually applied 
directly in, in my day job, which is coming up with uh, prices for insurance policies. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of like a bookie in my, in my day job, and I'm a better <laughs> in my night job. So you get that nice, that nice symmetry, um, you know, a, a lot of the same adverse selection uh, problem that, that I am exploiting in my hobby as a better is what I'm vulnerable to in, in my day job working for an insurance company. So it's a, it's a nice kind of outlet to, for, for stress relief to, to, to take the thing that is plaguing me in my job and, and sort of flip it where I can be the one who is taking advantage of, of, uh, of the market rather than, than trying to stop the market from taking advantage of me. So with the, the discussion around the Bayesian inference and, and the uncertainty, unpredictability, and trying to quantify that to the best uh, you know, of your ability at this current time, how does that lead to bet sizing and staking? Do you have a, a thought process you've sort of battled with in terms of Cali and what some of the most optimal ways to do that are? Or are you still working through that as well? Uh, well, I'm a believer in the Kelly criterion. It's it's uh, you know it's um, it, it's not even it shouldn't even be thought of as a as a belief system. And there, there have been some fun uh, back and forth on on Twitter over over that. And people even calling it a belief system. So it's a it's an, an indisputable fact. But the one thing that I think people have to realize about the Kelly criterion is it was built for uh, systems like blackjack where the probabilities are known quantities rather than estimates. And I think something that's maybe underappreciated in you know, both the, the, the scientific literature and the, the informal Twitter discourse is the impact this epistemic uncertainty has on, uh, on, on Kelly bet sizing. Because if you, if you think you have a 5% edge on something and you really might have a 2% or a 7% or a 0% or a negative 1%, the, the way you deal with that uncertainty can have a major impact on the way you size your Kelly bets. And, and really, I, I wrote an article about this uh, for, for Pinnacle and their betting resources site if anybody wants to, to have a look at it. Um, but what I discovered in this sort of field of study is, is that the idea of um, fractional Kelly and the idea of regression to market are, are actually interchangeable with a certain mathematical formula. And, and that if you have an initial estimate of what you think your edge might be on something, and you start making the same bets or similar bets over and over again in a repeated fashion, what you can actually do is take the emerging stream of results that you're getting and use those to feed back into your, your Kelly fraction. So if you start betting half Kelly, and you start winning um, at the same rate that you thought you would, then, then what the math says is maybe you should start going up to, to 0.55 Kelly or 0.6 Kelly, where if you start betting a half Kelly and, and you start losing or, or winning less than you thought you would, that is an indicator, not a perfect indicator, but, but an indicator that maybe your model isn't as strong as you thought it was and that your Kelly fraction should come down um, until you're able to, to, to start winning again, and then it comes back up. So a Kelly criterion is definitely a, a thing that should be used. Um, the, the, the question is the notion of fractional Kelly, how should one determine one's Kelly fraction, and, and is it possible to use emerging results to continuously update your Kelly fraction as a, a function of how certain you are that your edge is A, real, and B, 
the quantity that that you think it is. So is there a world when full Kelly is worthwhile? It sounds like you'd have to regress a fair bit back to the market before you would consider anything like that. Um, I mean, if you if you had a large enough sample size, you know, if you, if you bet a hundred baseball games every week for ten years and your results were within you know point oh one percent of your theoretical edge, then then sure, you know the my math would tell you that your Kelly fraction would approach point nine nine nine, which is you know, essentially one. But a better answer to your question is yes, full Kelly is appropriate when there is no epistemic uncertainty or parameter uncertainty, meaning that when the game you are playing is something where the probabilities are known with certainty, you're playing craps or you're playing roulette or you're playing blackjack or you're playing a lottery or you're doing something where the probabilities are known rather than being estimated. And really that, this estimation is the source of the parameter uncertainty that should, in my opinion, push your Kelly fraction below one. If it's not there, you know, if you're flipping coins and you're getting, you know, plus 105 on a coin flip of heads, then yeah, for sure you should bet full Kelly. So unless you know the outcome of a, of a sporting event or you have perfect inside information or the horses cross the line, then it's very, very unlikely that you're going to be in a situation where you should be using full Kelly. It's not even about knowing the outcomes. It's about knowing the probabilities of the outcomes. So, so you have the outcomes, which are, of course are going to be unknown until they happen. You have the probabilities of the outcomes, which are, are either what you know or what you're trying to estimate with a model, and you have the probabilities of the probabilities, um, where if I'm flipping a coin and I'm, I have no reason to believe that coin to be a biased coin, you know, the probability that the probability of heads is 50% is near 100%, if that makes any sense. Um, where if I'm betting on the Giants to cover the spread tonight, and, and my model says that there's a 54% chance the Giants will cover, well, there's a chance my model is wrong. Maybe it's really 53%. Maybe it's really 55%. And, and these are the kinds of things you, you can never really measure for sure, because probabilities are, are not measurable, only outcomes are. Um, the only thing you can do is, is get enough observations of enough similar outcomes from your model to, to identify, um, you know, what, whether, whether the actual approaches the expected. How do you deal with knowing you need a large sample size, knowing you need to do a lot of these, you know, you need to quantify a lot of these things when you're going through the process, like with your, your tennis setup at the moment? Can you get comfort throughout the process? Is there anything else you can be doing outside of large sample size, outside of great back testing and these types of things? Uh, yeah, you can, you can do back testing. There are all kinds of model validation techniques, holdout samples, and, and things like that. But there's no substitute for real world experience. And, and so all you can do is you, you can you can take steps to improve your model to the point where the range of uncertainty is as small as it can possibly be. It's never going to be zero um, unless you're dealing with, with dice or cards or some known, some known element. Um, that and, and uh, be self-aware enough to, to look at the results of your model as they come in to be able to distinguish between signal and noise to be able to turn off that little voice in your head that says any good results are due to skill and any bad results are, are due to luck. J 
just to be objective about why things are happening the way they're happening. It takes a kind of self-awareness that, that a lot of people don't have. So you mentioned tail risk before, I think, and, and thinking about some of Taleb's work in the markets, and it's easy to identify there, you know, market crashes, for example, and things like that, or certain black swan events, as he would call them. Is there a good analogy with sports betting? Are there those extreme events that we can point to in the markets that we might not be able to think through and identify immediately? Or are they long gone in the sense where a lot of the information is more known in the markets and a lot of the information sharing is far better today? Oh, there are lots. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Taleb. He, he, his books have taught me more about risk and markets than, than anything in the world. Um, there definitely are, and I'm, I'm sure people on Twitter will think of, of better examples than I can right now, but the one that comes to mind is um, injuries. So if you're, if you're betting, let's say, Tom Brady over and under 280 yards in the, in the game tonight, and you're trying to look at the history of Tom Brady's games, the, the, the Giants' defense, and trying to look at all the things that might play out during a game, and you're building your model based on um, the history of games that he's played. Well, there's a non-zero chance he comes out there, takes the first snap, you know, twists his ankle, goes down, and, and, and he's gone for the game. He's got zero yards passing. And I think that, that people who build models sometimes don't take that probability into account. And, and I can't prove that because ne- you never really know for sure. But intuitively, it, it seems like there might be more value betting on unders than overs when it comes to things like player props because whoever is, is either pricing the, the, the prop or shaping the market, y- you wonder if they're accurately pricing in the you know 2 or 3% probability that a certain player doesn't finish the game because they get hurt. So that would be, I don't know if you can call it black swan in the true Taleb sense, but when you're looking at individual game betting, um, that's probably the closest you can get, and even more so when you're looking at futures betting. Um, you know, you, uh, when you're, you're thinking about how to quantify the probability that, that, is, that you know, let's say, the Lakers win the NBA championship, if you don't think about the probability that... Uh, LeBron gets injured or Davis gets injured or, or something happens or, you know, there are all these, these sort of non-standard or, or non-intuitive um, things that, that are in the set of possible things that could happen that have to be accounted for. And, and you get this situation where, you know, if I project the Lakers to win 62 games because I'm, I'm thinking about what will happen game by game by game, it's more likely for me to miss that on the high side than to miss that on the low side. Because if you think about all of the possible surprises that could happen, when you look at the, the outcome of a, of, of a season, especially for a team that's a good team and expected to win a lot of games, there is more potential for negative surprises than there is potential for positive surprises. You may not be able to same thing for a bad team that's expected to lose a lot of games because you know maybe they'll trade for somebody really good during the season and that will really improve their win expectation. But for a good team, you can think about injuries as probably the, the, the most likely unanticipated surprise. And, and those are, are generally going to push a win total down um, you know, more than any estimatable surprise could, could push a win total up, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, that's interesting. What about on the payoff side? Obviously, if you short uh, equities and it, it goes in that direction, you can have a, a pretty substantial payoff. If we put aside you know, the limited points betting options in New Jersey and we put aside, yeah, you can you know buy points, you can probably go... Uh, certainly on totals anyway, you can, if it's a 47 and a half, you can go under 47, you can go probably under 39 and a half. If you look hard enough, you can probably go under 31 and a half. But in the, the yards total example with Brady, you probably can't go under 0.5 yards at plus 20,000 or, or 200 to one or 2000 to one or whatever the real probabilities are that you estimate. Is it okay to just chip away at the, the slight advantage you can have in betting those Brady unders and, eventually it'll work out or tell us about the the payoff scenarios yeah it's more of a thought experience sorry thought experiment in the in the brady case um, because if there was a brady under 0.5 passing yards prop it probably would be mispriced but it's not something that actually exists um but you're on the right track with things like alt totals and 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 the points betting thing which is something that i haven't studied in in great depth but i would like to it's on my list of things i want to get into in the future because points betting, when when you're like what you have in, in uh, with points bet in New Jersey, where you're trying to actually um, you, you win or lose based on the margin of the actual result compared to the the spread, it's a much harder line making exercise than just a standard point spread. Because in a standard point spread, all you have to nail is the median of the distribution. You know, the 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 Patriots were 17 point favorites. Well, okay. Well, as, as long as the Patriots cover that 17 half the time, it's a fair line. But if you're looking at a payoff that varies based on how much they either cover or don't cover that 17, well, now you really have to get the whole distribution right, not just the median. So it becomes a much more difficult exercise, both for the bookmaker and for me as a better trying to evaluate that bet. And I'll take that trade-off any day of a more difficult job for the bookmaker and a more difficult job for me because what you get, um, going back to Taleb, is something he calls anti-fragility, where the more potential there is for errors in the system, the more it benefits people like the better who have who have the optionality, who can decide, who can look at, at 15 NFL games in a given day and decide they want to bet all or some or one or none of them. And, and so that's really what, what being an opportunistic gambler is about is looking at a large number of possible opportunities rejecting almost all of them filtering out those few where either the bookmaker or the market has made an error and and the more complex the problem gets the higher the potential for error and so you know if they don't make an error i just pass the game but if they do uh that's where i can pounce so this points betting thing is as soon as i heard of it earlier this year um, it, it kind of perked my ears up of something that I'd, I'd like to to learn more about and research more. I just haven't had the time yet, but it's certainly on my list. Yeah, if we continue that thought experiment out, then and even though it is still on your list, obviously, if you know the definition of anti-fragile is essentially that you can get better with that uncertainty and you can be stronger from it or more robust. Do you think the better in that situation or the gambler in that situation can do that, or do you think there's more? Let's just say there's more uncertainty with your bankroll if you have a few very reasonable uh, likelihood events happen where it might be 17 and a half and, and you get killed on a, a few uh, if you thought they were going to win comfortably and they you know they lost by 14, which in the NFL are two touchdown loss by a 17-point a favorite. 
can happen. It's not something that's completely outrageous. Do you think there's a scenario where the gambler might be able to to maximize that situation or there's still that risk of obviously bankruptcy and and that type of thing? Uh, it's a good question. I think we have to separate the discussion into two different types of risks. There, there, there's the risk of the outcome lying at the tail versus the center of the distribution. But more interestingly, there's the error in the estimation of, of that distribution. So I, I think that's really what Taleb is talking about. And I think that's really where the better can find an advantage because you know odds are based on probabilities and probabilities are just estimates. So the, the, the more uncertainty there is in the estimate, the more potential there is for a better to take advantage. And again, this makes all the difference in the world. The power of selection is in the hands of the better, where um, the bookmaker has to offer odds on everything, every game, every league, every day. And it's my prerogative as a better to look at 5,000 different bets that might be offered by a given book on a given day and say, yeah, you know, 4,996 of these are, are, are no good. And four of them, I think there's an advantage. So as the bookmaker, if you're doing your job correctly, 99.9% of the time, you're going to get killed um, by the other 0.1%. And this is the same adverse selection problem that that is taught in in the actuarial literature and that is is a well-known phenomenon in the insurance industry where if you're pricing insurance and and you get the price wrong on on one type of policy out of a hundred well guess what the market is going to flood you with with that one percent and so it really the standard really is perfection, which is something that, that kind of stresses me out in my day job. But luckily, I, I have this, for all the fragility that I endure in my day job, I have this anti-fragility in my, in my hobby that I can use to, to kind of de-stress myself and, and live on the other side of the, of the fence. Yeah, that's really interesting. And one final question on, on the topic. If we're talking a, let's say, a Steelers-Ravens game from years past with uh, that Ravens defense and Flacco and, and Big Ben, the total's probably, I don't know, 37 most of the time. The spread's minus 2.5, minus 3, depending on who's at home, versus a Falcons-Saints game in the Dome when both teams are you know full-power offense and crappy defenses, as we've seen over the years, and the total might be closer to 60. Do you see, you know, when you're modeling out those types of games, you've got to go through the distribution of possible outcomes, and then you take a you know a, a process to try and, if we were points betting and we'd spent a lot of time studying this, you'd have to go through those types of uh, different things and then identify which ones have the best possible advantage for you. I think so. It's I mean, it's a pretty general um, point, but I think where, where you're going with with that is you do get a lot of extreme type of situations where, okay, an average NFL total might be 46, but you'll have some at 36 and some at, at, at 54, 55. And, and the temptation for, for a lot of people when they're building models, especially when they're starting out, is an over-reliance on averages. And, and averages are, are, are like plutonium. You know, if, if they get into the wrong hands, they can be very, very dangerous. And, and some of the worst model blow-ups in the history of the world from, from you know, long-term capital management um, to, to, to the, the global financial crisis 
to to all these things are generally caused by somebody assuming that a distribution is going to work like it's average. And, and, and so, you know, the one piece of advice I would give to, to people starting out in gambling analytics, sports analytics, any analytics, is use averages with a very, very high degree of caution because they can steer you wrong. When they steer you wrong, you will not realize they're steering you wrong until it's too late. And when you blow up, you will blow up spectacularly. Not to put the fear into people. <laughs> it's happened to me once or twice. Um, it's a lesson everyone has to learn. Tell me then with, with the insurance industry and, and pricing that, and obviously the tail risk can wipe you out essentially or put you in a world of hurt. What do you do in that world? Uh, well, there, there are risk mitigation um, things you can do. Uh, one of them is something called reinsurance where you'll actually buy protection for, for your tail risks from other companies that, that are acting on more of a global scale and that have a lot higher uh, bankroll per se than, than my company might have. Um, and, and really that and diversification of risk are, are really your two, uh, your, your two best weapons to protect against that. But you, you never know what you don't know uh, until you know it, to be facetious. <laughs> And, and, and so uh, I, I do live in fear that one day something's going to come up and bite me that I hadn't realized until it's too late. And, and that's just, that's part of, of the job of, 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 uh, of being in the insurance business. And it's part of that fragility that comes along with it. Uh, you know, in, in my, in my betting career, I get up every day hoping somebody will, will message me on Twitter or call me and say, Hey, I have this great idea for an angle that'll beat the markets. Um, so it, it really is the, the exact opposite um, position to be in, whether you're, you're the bookmaker or the insurance company versus whether you are the, the uh, insurance buyer or the investor or the better. You know, it's all about trying to find weakness in, in markets. And you, you can be the person trying to find the weakness in the market or you can be the market trying to defend yourself against the people trying to find your weaknesses. And, you know, Taleb, what he says is you're always going to have more success in the long run as as the person trying to beat the system than you are as the person trying to protect the system from being beaten. So I'm I'm interested in your thoughts about different gambling games. If you talk about online poker, I think you mentioned from the 04 to 09 period and then obviously the horse racing stuff uh, years later and then obviously betting and, and just the day job in the insurance, the bookmaking world for insurance do you think it's beneficial to jump around from different gambling games and learning how different people do things in those different worlds? Or do you think there's a, there's an element of missed opportunity to have, you know, generate more domain expertise in one specific field or area related to sport or poker or, or horse racing? Uh, I wouldn't say it's an either or there's definitely an advantage to, to going sort of narrow and deep as opposed to wide and shallow because you, you over time, you learn things from becoming an expert in something that you wouldn't get from being a generalist. However, the advantage of being a generalist is you pick up different techniques and you can apply them maybe in areas that, that are unexpected or non-traditional. The, you know, the same way that I'm, I'm taking concepts I learned from my horse racing days and applying them in the pricing of insurance. Well, there are a lot of insurance pricing experts who never would have even thought to think about the problem that way. So you get this kind of cross-pollination of ideas 
from from having a diversity of different uh, different skills in, in different domains. But there is also something to be said for for the the um, depth of knowledge that comes with doing just one thing and one thing well. So there there isn't really a clear answer. So when you think about how you might want to extract money from the system and and win at betting and gambling, take us through a little bit about your thought process because there's a lot of a lot of people out there are you know essentially say unless you can originate and bet based on your model against the the market and win, then you, you anything outside of that is not betting and gambling. Whether you're you know there's a million different ways people do it, and some start out doing it with with arbing or you know, using bonuses and generating their knowledge in the gambling space and may at some point be an originator in one sport, for example. But when you look at what are the possible angles to, to find a way to make money, are there dozens and dozens or how do you think about it? Oh, there are, there are all kinds. So the, the way I would generally classify them is you have your, your arbitrage guys and your steam chasers and you're taking advantage of discrepancies between markets or between points in time. And I totally respect the people out there who, who do that, but it's just not, it's not my game. It's not what I'm into. It requires a skill set that, that doesn't match mine. And then you have your originators who, who are just building up a probability from, from scratch and trying to, to, to beat the markets. And that's something where there's a lot, of, a lot of money, a lot of value in that, but it is extremely difficult to do. And it's not something that I've ever done done a lot of and I'm not sure whether it's because I have too much respect for markets and I say to myself well there's no way I could ever do anywhere near as good a job of this as the people who are already doing it or, or whether it's just because I, I uh, haven't put the time in um, I would consider myself some somewhat of a semi originator where I'll take a line if we use tennis as an example I'll say okay I'm not going to try and, and, and figure out the probability of Djokovic beating Nadal on a grass court in the Wimbledon semifinals. I'm going to let the market do that for me because there are people out there who, who know tennis and have analyzed tennis way better than I ever could. But what I'm going to do is say, okay, assuming that line is efficient, assuming the money line is efficient, what, what can I presume from that? What can I take from that and apply to price the total or to price the spread or to price the in-match odds. So it's basically about taking markets that I have reason to believe are more efficient, taking the information I learn from them and transforming it and using it against related markets that I have reason to believe are less efficient. So I'm, I guess I kind of fall somewhere in between that the, the, the ARB guy and the originator um, and that I'm not building from scratch, but I'm, I'm taking the market and I'm, I'm using it to, uh, to, to look at these the sort of derivative plays. So with that said, if you were giving up the, the insurance bookie day-to-day role and you wanted to go full-time, full steam ahead into, let's just say, sports betting, for example, what type of considerations would run through your mind or what type of research and analysis would you consider doing so that you might be best prepared for something like that. Yeah, it's it's something that I, that I have thought about, and it's not something that I'm, I'm considering doing anytime soon. You know, there there are there are personal reasons. There's the the stability and personal fulfillment that comes with having a regular job that some people value more than others. Um, there's the opportunity cost component, where um, the 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 income I'd be giving up if I was to quit my job 
is quite different than if I was uh, stocking shelves at Walmart and the income I'd be giving up there. Um, there are tax considerations because in Canada, and this is this is there are a lot of really interesting tax law cases in Canada. But the law is that gambling winnings are non-taxable unless you are quote unquote in the business of betting. Um, and, and I think that the if, if I ever got audited, I have a strong case to make right now that I am not in the business of betting. But if I quit my job, I think that would change and my whole tax situation would change uh, in a way that, that would not benefit me. Um, but the, the most important thing is sustainability. You know, the, the plays I'm making today could be gone tomorrow. Every, every plus EV bet is somebody else's mistake. And once the market catches up to it or removes it entirely, it's gone forever. And it generally does not come back. Um, how sustainable are these markets going to be? If, if you look at how many pro poker players there were 10 years ago versus how many there are now, I would guess there are a lot fewer now than there were back then. The, you know, everyone says that sports betting is popular and it will be popular forever. It, it will not. These things come and go in terms of popularity. So the amount of money that is available to be made may not be uh, you know, in, in 2029, what it is in 2019, it might be more, it might be, it might be the same, might be less, but it's a source of uncertainty that I have to consider uh, if I was going to quit my day job because my day job is not the kind of thing you can quit, become a professional gambler for two or three years and then try and get back into the, the buttoned-up white-collar workforce and say, hey, you know, hire me. You know, I, I took two to three years off to, to, to gamble full time, but I'm ready to come back into the workforce. I, I don't know how well I would be accepted or if I would even be able to find a job that's comparable to what I have right now. Um, so it all comes down to uncertainty and sustainability. So for those reasons, I'm, I'm more than happy to, to, keep, uh, to keep grinding out my, my day job and, and doing this for fun. So on that topic of fun, a lot of people say, you know, if you're really, really smart, you're not going to share anything, which, you know, having a podcast in this space is not something I necessarily love to hear because it it means all the best people are hiding away in their chalets somewhere. But obviously, smart people produce public content. You write articles on Pinnacle. I've heard you do podcasts and you tweet, you know, very useful things for your audience. Tell me a little bit about why you consider being public with that you know, in that regard where you're putting out things that obviously people look at and, and thank you for, I'm sure. And I'm sure there's some benefit that comes with that. For, for sure. And so I would say that at least 95% of the money I have made betting in, in the course of my life has come as a result of opportunities that have come to me because people have found me, um, whether it's in, in those old, uh, uh, Canadian lottery forums, or whether it's now on Twitter, or whether it's um, you know directly coming up to me and saying, "Hey, you know, I, I hear you're into betting," um, but I, I have had some really cool and really lucrative partnerships from people who who read my stuff, who hear my stuff, and say, "Yeah, you know, this this guy knows what he's doing. I want to partner with him on such and such opportunity." And, and you know, it's another example of anti-fragility because you never really know what you're going to get. And, and the uncertainty from putting my stuff out there into the world and seeing what, what comes of it, this is an example of something where the potential for positive surprises is a lot more than the potential for negative surprises. So that's why I try and build my, my personal brand, build my following on Twitter, 
you know, get myself out there in the eyes and ears of people who, who have good ideas and are looking for, for partners um, or who, who just want to want to throw ideas off each other. And some of the best opportunities come from that. So that's what I'm, uh, that, that's what I have, have done. That's what I do. And that's what I continue to look for. Yeah. It certainly seems more robust than, than hiding away in many respects. And on that topic with, you know, Taleb in mind, some of the, the books that you've found relevant from a Bayesian perspective, or it might be general modeling or even just how to approach markets. Have you got any others that come to mind? Uh, the, the book, uh, I think it was William Poundstone on the Kelly Criterion was a great book. That That's one that's in the library of, of most of the professional betters I know. Fortune's um, Formula? Fortune's Formula, that's it. Thank you. Um, everything by Taleb, of course, is is excellent. Um, Fooled by Randomness is his his, uh, his first book, which is probably the most relevant to, to gambling, but they're all excellent. And then just as you know, my, my textbooks and education from, from growing up in the actuarial curriculum and, and uh, going to school for actuarial science, um, obviously people, not everyone uh, who's listening to this podcast is going to do that, but so much stuff can be, can be self-taught um, with some, some Google searches or whatever free online courseware is out there today. There's all kinds of stuff. There, there's never been as much information as freely available to the public um, than there is right now, and you know, of course there'll be even more tomorrow than there is today. But being resourceful and being a good Google searcher and knowing what to look for and what to filter out as garbage is, is a really useful skill for people who want to learn things as quickly and efficiently and cheaply as possible. So that's what I'd recommend. Awesome, Matt. Before I let you go, just let us know again your Twitter handle so those that are interested in sending you a a message or following along in, in what you're putting out there, they can do so. My Twitter handle is at plus EV analytics, P L U S E V analytics, all one word. And uh, yeah, hit me up. Uh, my direct messages are, are always open and love to talk to anybody about anything. Awesome. Matt, appreciate your time. Thanks again for coming on the show. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. 